0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, from the first chapter, and will be the first five verses. And today, being less of uh, a length of passage, we'll all read this together. So let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll alternate. I'll read the first, and then us all together on the second. Father in heaven, again, we ask the author of scripture, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to open our minds, to clear our thoughts, Lord, to give us understanding so that we can obey what we read. Make this live to us. Make us your students. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I've been looking forward to this message. Uh, I do at times feel somewhat of uh, an anxiety when it's necessary to think our way through uh, technical aspects of, say, the beginning of a study. Uh, It inevitably involves an introduction, a look at the structure And how the the book or the letter is put together by its author, all of which is foundational to understanding what we are to do. And when I say anxiety, only because um, I know that not everyone and not because of your past here or, or the way in which you look at or understand or value the Word of God, but not every Sunday we bring our brain to church. Not every Sunday do we make sure that we are thinking our way through something. And it's more important here now than ever. When we get into chapter 2, we're going to begin to follow John through narrative. He's going to be telling us stories. So it's less involved to think through, say, the structure of how he sets these things up. And being that we'll conclude the prologue or the introductory material this morning, perhaps this is where last week, the week before, and today, come together and that light bulb comes on. We get it. We see where he's going. We at least are tracking with John. And, and for me, that is my hope. That's what I've been looking forward to. And I always hope to be able to show it, maybe on my face or my voice. If I'm excited, maybe you'll be excited. It's usually not the other way around. Well, he's not excited. I'm not excited. I'm excited about today, and the songs that we've sung so far has only set to to lay out the table before us of the truth that we have uh, together. Last week, actually, the week before last week, when we started John's gospel three weeks ago, we discussed the purpose of it. That is, the last verse couple of verses in the 20th chapter where John said I wrote these things these things are written that you might believe that was his purpose to make a believer out of you that Jesus is who he said he was last week we opened chapter 1 and we read through I did what we just read a moment ago and we read all the way through the first 18 verses and we highlighted we pulled out from those 18 verses three verses in particular, and we left alone the verses in between those three verses. What we were doing was we were pulling out John's arguments, what he's going to use as the support or the table for the rest of the 20 chapters. We discussed last week, first of all, that the word which he uses to describe Jesus has always been, almost as if to Repeat the introduction of the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, was Jesus. In the beginning was with God and was God. So we went away last week by saying Jesus is God. We learned that. And then in verse 14, which was the second statement or argument or claim, we learned that the Word became flesh. Now that's quite significant because. The word being in forever past or timelessness past, which is difficult enough to use the word like timelessness, and then past, which has to do with time. But there's there's mystery there. It's like abstract art. Do you ever remember learning the word abstract? The word abstract means it doesn't really make sense, right? I never got abstract art. I look at it and I think, what is that? It needs a description. You don't know what that is. It's abstract. So thinking in the past where God was, we've never been, is difficult to to grab a hold of. But then when we get to verse 14, 14, but that word, same one, became flesh. Well, we left abstract and now are in the concrete. We know flesh. We are flesh. And then we learned at the very end in verse 18 that that was for the purpose of showing us what we've never seen No one has seen God because he's in eternity, past, present, future. But we have a hard time relating to him as a spirit. So we'll relate better to his son as a person. And that's the purpose John is writing us about. So today, let's take the information. We didn't read all the way through it, but we read what we'll spend the most time on. Let's take what we removed from The first 18 verses, that'd be two through 13 and 15 through 17. And we put it back into John's argument and explain those arguments by what we left out last week. Now, remember, the major claims of John have already been said. He claimed that he's God. He claimed that Jesus became man. And he claimed that he was here to tell us about the father. Those bold claims have already been said. We're not going to add to that this morning. We're just going to explain what is meant by that. Now, the arrangement of information here is somewhat complex. I I already said that this is a very simplistic book as far as its language and its composition. But the material inside is about as profound as it gets. And the information we'll read through here today is attached to specific points all through the other 20 chapters. And because this is a Sunday morning and a sermon only has so much time, we're not going to chase down every one of those things. That's for the weeks to come. So for the purpose of keeping this simple and within the bounds of a normal length of sermon, we're only going to look at the themes within this passage, these 15 verses or so. Here are your themes, okay? Creation, life, light, we read through those already, darkness, grace, and salvation. Now, I don't know what you would think about those terms, but those are about as exciting of themes as you could get. Let's just say you were supposed to write a novel and all you could write about was things like creation and life and light versus darkness and grace and salvation. You could write a Bible around those words, right? Those are the the things that we want to know most about. Where did we come from? What is this thing we call life? And then light versus darkness. The entire movie industry. And specific genres revolve around light versus darkness, and the best-selling ones at that. And then grace and salvation. So there's plenty of drama in this passage here. We've just got to be able to get it out. And hopefully, these things will help color up what we've been talking about for the past two weeks, and it'll all make sense. So let's look at the first one, creation. And that goes back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the first thing that John tells us about the Word, or Jesus, uh, the first two verses he described who he was and where he was and when he was, but the first thing personally about Jesus, the word, is that he created everything. Now, Genesis is not necessarily that specific, just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John gives us a little more information. In the beginning, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, was the, the agent of God through which everything came to be, would be the more precise way to say that. Um, now he goes on to qualify even more by saying, and without him was not anything made that was made. So what do we know? Name something that Jesus didn't make. It's a trick question. You shouldn't be able to say anything at all. He made it all. If it's here, he made it. If it's not, he didn't. Nothing was made that was made without him. He created everything. Now, the, the implications of, of, of some of this is what we'll focus on this morning rather than just trying to retell something that in a church like this I think most of us are familiar with. And again, being clear and and transparent for those who may not be as initiated, we don't see the same specificity in Genesis, but we do know that it was Jesus who spoke this world into existence. Now, again, we're trying to, to grasp the abstract, but this is becoming, with every line we read, more and more personal. So, you're thinking about God in Genesis who made everything. Now, you're thinking about Jesus who came to earth as a man who created everything, including you. Um, I don't know if we've got any C.S. Lewis fans here. It was the magician's nephew in the Narnia series where he describes Aslan creating Narnia as if an allegory of what we're reading here. He chose to put it in the terms of him singing it into existence. It's very dramatic. The way to use words and to paint the picture of this is is truly amazing. But the question I'd like to ask, this is just for your thought. Have you ever thought your way through the implications of your Savior having been your creator? The one who came to save you is the one who made you in the first place. So of of all else and others, who would know you best? And not just the intricacies of the detail and wonder, him showing off as the creator, but also acutely aware, more so than you or anyone else, your inefficiencies, your, your, your faults your problems, your need, your deepest need, which is salvation. That'd be Jesus. You could look at it another way. Your creator, being your savior, is also your authority. Who else would have authority over you? Our entire culture in America looks at the self as being the highest authority for a person. That's not what we see here in scripture by virtue of the fact that he's the one that made us but that's who we're talking about here. And then this also helps us with verse 14 where we found out that the word became flesh. Who do you think better to become flesh than the man who made flesh to begin with? So he knows exactly what flesh is. It's not like we have to think, all right, well, we've got a new person coming into the staff here that's going to run the thing. You think he knows anything about what he's doing? Not in this case. He knows everything about what he's doing. He knows more about humanity than we do. We're fallen. He's not. So it's humanity in perfection. Well, let's look at the next two, and that's life and light. And we'll have to keep these together because they're connected together in the text here. I don't think they're meant to be pulled apart. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So we'll look at life first and then light. And if you ask yourself the question, what life is John referring to in reference to Jesus or the word in him? That's Jesus was life. Well, this would be original life. Life before we knew anything about it. And I don't know if any of you remember or are familiar with uh, Louis Pasteur. Remember him? Scientists, French man, um, biologist. He's, uh, well known for his pioneering work in, uh, let's see, vaccination and, uh, pasteurization, which is named after him. It's a process of, uh, getting things out of, uh, milk that you wouldn't want to drink. And just think if his name had been something else, then every carton of milk or orange juice or whatever would have his name on it or a different name than pasteurized just think of your last name and eyes at the end of it and how you'd like that to be on all the shelves in the grocery stores it made that big of a difference but what i remember him from is something i was taught in home school, and that was that this guy was uh the one who made famous the law of biogenesis you remember the law of biogenesis Nobody remembers it. Let me tell you about it. The law of biogenesis states that living things can only come from other living things. And it was in direct contest against the common knowledge of the day, which was called spontaneous generation. It might rain for a long time, and then you've got a lot of mosquitoes around, but most people just thought, well, a lot of mosquitoes just kind of poofed into existence. And he said there's a reason for this. And he did tests in jars and certain things like uh, rotting meat that usually had maggots all over it. If in a jar, clothes never had maggots on it. And what he found out was all along, life is coming from other living things through reproduction. It's wrong for us to think it just pops into place. And that has been scientific law since. You cannot get living things from dead things. And so is the truth with the world and all its history. If you back the clock up before, life doesn't begin by accident. This is scientific law, but it seems to be forgotten when it comes to origin of the species. You've got to have life to get life. Where does the original life come from? Bound up within the existence of God for eternity. He shared it with us. That's where we get our life. But specifically speaking here, something is special regarding men as opposed to all the rest of life. Look at it. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So he's going to call this life light, but only for men. Throughout Scripture, light is used to communicate the idea of knowledge and understanding. If you have understanding... You are what? A a bright person. We use this all the time. I had an idea the other day. The light bulb came on, right? Thinking, knowledge, I get it, is light. The light shines in on, uh, say, you're you're not knowing something. Well, this is what we see uh, in Scripture, even morally speaking, that light is right. And then the opposite of that would be darkness, and that would be wrong. So what is it about this life that Jesus is that we look at also as life? It's acting specifically as light for humanity. Well, think of it this way. The, the reason why there's just people here, humans, as, as opposed to all the rest of the life in this planet, you know, there's a lot more life on this planet than humans. Bacteria outnumber us almost like the grains of the sand on the seashore. Animals, birds, fish, all those things. Man is different. How is man different? Man can understand. Man can reason. Man can think. Man can communicate. So God gave this special ability to man that he didn't give to the rest of the animals so that he could communicate with them, so that they could bear his image, so that they could have a relationship with him. His life that he gave us was, in a way, light that all the rest of the life does not have. An understanding that we don't have. Um, in a certain respect, I actually envy animals on one level. And that is that they do exactly what God created them to do with no protest Fish do exactly what fish were created to do. Birds do exactly what birds were created to do. The planets do exactly what they were, and they're not even living, but they orbit in, in, in their, their, their spheres exactly like they were designed to do with some degradation as this world uh, winds down because of the curse of sin. But they're obedient. There's only one thing on the planet that is disobedient. The only one thing that was given an option to disobey, and that is man. Does that make sense to you? Animals are basically robots in that fashion. And wouldn't you say that there's a difference in relationship between a robot and a person who can understand, reason, communicate, and think? Would anyone be interested in a robotic kiss? (laughs) Now you see the difference, do you not? There's a huge difference. And I think that is what is being said. In him was life. That's where we see all life. But this life was light to men. There's something different here. The idea of light here is an illumination that points us to God and a relationship that we can have with him. Now, here's where we add to the mix the idea of darkness, and that's in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This, again, is, is talking in uh, scientific, physical uh, language. Any kid with a flashlight in his room after lights out knows that light shines in darkness. And anyone with any experience or thinking their way through that knows that there's never been an instance, even with a flashlight in a dark room, where the room is so dark that the darkness overcomes the flashlight. Light always shines in the darkness. There's no darkness that can prevent light or overcome it. So if light, think here, I ask you to bring your brain with you this morning. If light is understanding the things we know, then darkness is ignorance, right? And if those things be true, here the light is understanding and it is being spoken into the ignorance, which is the darkness. And if we look here at the verse, the ignorance has not extinguished the understanding. So there's something about God that man knows that even though this world is a dark place, they don't know much about God. That has not overpowered at least some bit of understanding about God that he has stamped on each of our hearts and in our heads. Paul opens the book of Romans like this, saying that we are without excuse, that everyone knows, even On the very basic level that there is something different between good and bad. There's something between light and dark. There's a reason why these movies of light and dark resonate with people, even those that are lost. They get it. They understand it. They know instinctively that good is better than bad. But we don't have... All of that, just just a, a, a glimmer of that. And what this is, theologically speaking, is the difference between general and special revelation. Did you know you were going to get theological definitions in here as well? There's general revelation, that is that everyone knows there's a difference between good and evil. How do we know that? It came from a bite of fruit in the Garden of Eden, from a tree called what? The knowledge of good and evil. We've all got that. But then there's a special revelation as this, where God specifically told us things through the mouths of his prophets, through his apostles, through his son Jesus, and that's the rest of the story. And that's what John is saying here. This life is light and understanding to a lost world, and that lost world will not extinguish that understanding. It will go out into the highways and byways, the nooks and crannies. We learn about it in the book of Acts as the word of God went out and God brought people into his church. It's called the Great Commission. We'll learn about that as we get into this book. But look at verse 5 again. This is somewhat of a transition. It signals a change between what was in the past where Jesus had been for eternity and what would happen when he got here to this earth. Verse 6 Uh, is is that change between five and six is God forever past and six is what God looks like in the form of Jesus on this planet in space and time. So the word which is life is light now leaving heaven to illuminate the darkness on earth. So think about it in those theological terms. The world has general revelation. They know the difference between right and wrong. Though they might want to say they don't. Or that what's right for me is what's wrong for this guy. And that's okay. You can test this hypothesis this afternoon. Go to Walmart and break in line. (laughs) They have general revelation. They know. And they'll tell you. But what they don't know, what is dark in this world that we know is the specific information that Jesus saves. That specific, special generation is what John is doing. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. Jesus is here, the life, to give us the light that will pierce through the darkness of our ignorance to give us salvation. Now we're into grace and salvation, those last two. And we'll look at that by moving through these last number of verses quickly because a lot of this we'll save for later. It's tied to other chapters and stories in John's gospel that uh, we'll leave for another time um, and another study. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And we'll learn later, but I'll tell you now, that's not John the author. That's John the Baptist, the front runner, the man crying in the wilderness, make the way straight for the coming Messiah. That's John. There was a man sent from God. God sent him. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Why? That all might believe. So here's the story being told. Special revelation. He was not the light, he's not Jesus, but he came to bear witness about the light. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. We've just read that. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. We, we just learned that. So John is starting to pick up the pace. The snowball is rolling. Yet the world did not know him. Why not? Because they're in darkness, they're in ignorance, they, they haven't thought through this yet. Of course, they'll know him when they hear the rest of the story, but they don't know him as yet. And then he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That would be the Jews, the Hebrews, the people God had been working from with from way back in the days of Abraham. We went through this when we studied. He saved us all those things through the Old Testament. But it seems as if his own people didn't even get the message correctly. They were still in ignorance. Look at here. This is the gospel, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who get it, who understand it, who see the light and receive the life. How do you do that? By believing in his name. To these people, he gave the right to become children of God. Wonder of wonders, Jesus has left heaven For adoption. To take people out of the dark world back with him to heaven. To unwind the curse of Eden. To undo what had been done when all the relationships from man to God were broken from sin. Verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is rebirth. We'll see this clearly when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3. But the message of true light is the good news of the gospel that those who believe on his name can become the children of God. Verse 14, that might be everyone's favorite, either the whole 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then more background. And we, that's the author John, Have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. He's saying we saw it. We got it. We, We got the light. It made sense to us. We saw him as he is in glory, just like his father. Then he says in 15, John bore witness about him. That's John the Baptist. He cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes before me ranks before me comes after me ranks before me because he was before me we won't make sense of that until we get into further chapters talking about this man who felt as if he wasn't worthy to untie his sandal but he's here to trumpet the coming of the Messiah so what you've got there is both John the author and John the Baptist testifying to the truth of these claims as star witnesses John the Baptist who was the last prophet of the old economy Think about that. This ties us to the Old Testament. He's the last Old Testament prophet, theologians tell us. And then you've got John the Apostle from the New Covenant, who's also called sometimes John the Revelator. He'll write Revelation, the prophecies that have yet to come. Both of these as the chosen instruments of declaring to us through this word the message from God to this planet earth. Well, let's look at the two final verses. This is how we close. And uh, this has to be done delicately to make sure that we get it all together. Verse 16, For from His fullness, that's Jesus. Fullness is a word you might want to underline. That requires some explanation. It, It just means that in the process of time, when all the prophecies came to fruition, when, when God was ready and the angels held their breath and Jesus was born into this world through the Virgin Mary and on te- heaven's timetable is much faster than we would. It took 30 some years. But at the fullness of time, when he had appeared, as we learned in Titus, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. As far as a theological heat map, to be able to put that over what you see in Scripture as to the significance and importance of, of, of what we're looking at, this verse is about as red hot as you could get. I mean, just look at what we've got in here. The fullness. When all the promises of God converge to the point where his son is leaving heaven for earth, we receive grace upon grace. What does he mean by that? Well, he begins to explain in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Law and grace in one verse. I don't know how much background you've got in your studies, how long you've been a Christian, how long you've been listening to sermons and reading books and trying to equip yourself as a Christian. But you'd you'd be hard-pressed to find two more important words representing two testaments, as it were. And inevitably it looks as if we as humans would like to not say law and grace as much as we would like to replace the word and with the word versus. Law versus grace. As if they're two separate things in opposition to each other. Okay? What is the difference? Because they're not the same thing. But what is the difference between law and grace? We know law from the Old Testament. The the, the most basic understanding of the law would be the Ten Commandments that were given to Moses that Moses gave to the people. And the arrangement was, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, you'll represent me to the rest of the world. And there's a certain way you need to look, which is a lot like me. This is how you are to behave and God specifically, special revelation. This was more than what's stamped on their hearts, but they were given specifics as to what God wanted of them. But as we watch that whole thing through the centuries, we understand that there's one thing the law was very good at, and that was explaining the fact that no one can keep it. We've all fallen short of it. We try. It's not that we don't know what to do. Paul would say, I know exactly what to do. It's just doing it that's the hard part. And what I know I shouldn't do, that's what I wind up doing. He described it as a body of death. But think about that. A law, even if all it's good for is to let you know that you need a Savior. You're lost. But to me, tell me. Do you think the giving of the law, that you actually have it, is that a gift of love and grace? Or is that a gift of hate? Think of raising your children. Would you ever think to discipline your children before you told them what you expected of them? Son, I'm going to punish you today for a, 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 a rule that I'm going to give you tomorrow. That wouldn't make sense. That would be cruel. Now whether or not your child can live up to these rules that you give them is a different story. And really none of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. Romans says, for we've all sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. You could say the law of God. His law is a display of his glory. So we have a law and we're glad we've got it. Because it tells us what we need to know. Paul would describe it as the schoolmaster that trained him to know his desperate need for a savior. If it were not for the law, we wouldn't know what wrong is. We wouldn't know how wrong we are and we wouldn't know how lost we are. The law is also grace. Now, when you get to this part of the story and read of the fullness of Jesus, like we learned in Titus, when the loving kindness and grace of God appeared, he brought with him salvation. So Jesus came not only to fulfill the law, but to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Not just to forgive us of our sins, but to be for us what we couldn't be. He was going to give us his obedience. Do You see how that works? We trade him. We don't have righteousness. That's obedience. We have sins. That's disobedience. He took our sins and died on the cross such that his father is satisfied and his wrath abated only for those who, in exchange for their sins, take Christ's righteousness. We call that grace from the New Testament. What John is saying is that we've got law and grace. Which if we understand the way he's telling us, we've got grace on top of grace. Do you see that? Look at it. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. That's double grace. That's more than we could ever ask for. That's more than we'd ever deserve. You don't just get grace with Jesus. You get double grace. He's doing for you what you couldn't do. He's fixing the mistake that you made. He gave us the option in Eden to obey him or disobey him. We disobeyed him. But instead of punishing us like he promised to do, he punished us a different way by punishing his son for us in our place. And letting us off the hook. Grace upon grace. Wonder of wonders. Does it all come together? This word who was in the beginning. And we're dealing with a lot of, of words here. And, and, and make sure that we know we're using metaphors, right? Back to English class. Metaphors are one, one thing that describes another thing. It was full of metaphors. Jesus is described by John the Baptist as the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? But also he's going to describe him as the lion. A lion's not a lamb. Jesus is like both. He's light. He's life. He's the word, the message from heaven, from his father to this earth so that we would know what grace upon grace is all about. Look at the last verse. Here we close. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, we've called this study an introduction to Jesus, right? And John has said much about what he's writing in order to have us believe that Jesus is who he said he was. We've learned a lot about John. We've learned a lot about Jesus. And John is purposefully introducing us to Jesus. But what he's saying in verse 18, even though he writes his gospel to introduce us to Jesus, is he's saying that Jesus is here to introduce us to his Father. Does that make sense? John's introducing us to Jesus, but Jesus left heaven to introduce us to his Father, who we've never seen. And friend, you will never know God, apart from knowing Jesus. Not only did he leave heaven to become like us, to introduce us, it's the way the Father designed I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but through me. So we're reading an introduction to Jesus. And as we understand, it's really an introduction to God the Father. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? If you don't, talk to the friend that brought you this morning, talk to a pastor here on staff. Talk to someone. Make this make sense to you. Like Larry King talking about the other week. If he could interview anybody, he'd interview Jesus. Why? Because he wanted to ask him, Was you, are you really God's son? And I want to know, has Larry King figured that out yet? Because we can know. There's no such thing as blind faith the world would like to think that that's what we're doing here this morning we get dressed up we come to church we sing songs to exercise our blind faith because it's blind there's nothing to hang it on as rubbish these are written that you might believe what's written things that happened in space and time from real people who really existed who really wrote these things down as they really saw them Don't think that your faith has to be blind. You just need to know the hook to hang it on. John has given us the most beautiful, elegant hook to hang faith on. Serve to us on this platter an introduction to Jesus as he introduces his Father. There's where you place your faith. Well, let's sing.
1: Would you bow and pray with me, please? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given to us, that we can come to church, worship with our brothers and sisters. Thank you for those who are, who are watching online. We thank you for pastors that teach your word without compromise, that teach in truth, and they're not afraid to do that. And we are so very grateful to sit under that teaching we're also grateful, Lord, that we can do that in a country that is free. We're thankful for the many that you have called to serve our country and the military for the service and the sacrifice that they have made. We, uh, we thank them, and we thank you for that. Father, we'd ask that you would watch over the many, many of our congregation who need your healing touch, some for physical, emotional, spiritual needs we ask that you would bring in your will swift and complete healing thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to be of service to them that we can be hands your hands your feet your voice your hug of encouragement and help us lord to be faithful to do that we ask that you would uh, bring a special blessing on our mission of the week for Fellowship International's mission with John and Marilyn Asma and their family. Thank you for um, the opportunity and the privilege that is ours to support them with our prayers and with our finances. I ask that you would provide for all of their needs and that we would be generous with our time and our resources to support them for that. As we leave here and go forward this week, We have many full agendas for all of us. I ask, Lord, that you would bring to mind the words that we've heard this morning. Take them from our heads and put them in our hearts and move all that has happened here from our hearing and put it in our doing. May all this be for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.